Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you do have your Bible, you can hold it in two places. Exodus 20 is where the series is based out of, written on the heart. If you're visiting, welcome. We've been, this is week eight in a series looking at probably the most famous passage in the Old Testament, um, the Ten Commandments. But also, if you have time or you already have Exodus 20 bookmarked, why don't you go to Matthew 5 and we'll we'll hit Matthew 5 later on, but, but better to have it right now. Uh, well, I'm going to pray and we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Exodus 20 and then Matthew 5. Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for the freedom we have to worship. Thank you for this amazing space that is enough for us to meet and study and think and enough for our kids to do the same. Uh, Lord, for coffee and tea and things to eat. Uh, you've just been so generous to us and we're grateful, not just for this experience, but for where this experience leads us. Lord, uh, thank you that you don't, you don't depart on Sunday and show up again next week, but you're with us moment by moment, day by day, and we want to be more in tune with your rhythm. We want to be more in tune with your life, so we invite you now, Spirit of God, to teach us the way of Jesus so that we can be in sync with who you are and live your life the way you intend and not just on our own. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Well, Exodus 20, verse 14, we're in the middle of these really short commandments. If you've missed out on the others, feel free to podcast or just listen online for free. Exodus 20, 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Welcome. I know this morning when you go, oh, I can't wait to go to church and see what God has for us. You shall not commit adultery. Five words in English. In Hebrew, it's even more blunt. Two words. No adultery. That's the end of the story. And while this may seem so obvious, I want to say a special welcome if you're a middle schooler, high schooler, or you're college age, just starting your career or, or ending your schooling. Uh, I want to speak to you mostly, and then I'm going to invite everyone who's beyond that stage, whether a married or single and older or divorced or empty nester. You can listen in too, but I really have one group in mind. It's those who are still students or just getting their start in life. But the rest of you feel free to not walk out because that would seem very awkward. All right, you can listen in. Uh, Adultery is something that we see played out in the media and so much so that we don't even think about it. The idea of hooking up, the idea of following your passion, the idea with experience as much as, experiencing as much as you can is absolutely the norm if you look on social media, Instagram or YouTube, mainstream media, television, movies, Netflix, uh, Snapchat, wherever, uh, doing what you want with whomever you want is the cultural norm. That's why I want us to have this conversation because all day long we're, we're hit with messages about how you express yourself, particularly sexually, how you live out your manhood, how you live out your womanhood, who you are and what you do. It's talked about all day, but we don't talk about it in the church. We're a little shy. So first, an apology. I apologize that it's taken us so, so long for us to get to no adultery, okay? But I was just going in order, so don't blame me. But we don't talk about it enough. So first, I, I need to set the framework for the conversation. The Ten Commandments, because some of you just walked in. The Ten Commandments are not ten rules that if you follow, God loves you. The Ten Commandments are given to people loved by God. 
already rescued by God. He already took them out of Egypt. He already brought them through the Red Sea. He already provided water in the desert, already provided food in the desert. He already loved them. And he loved them so much, he thought, okay, there's a whole new way of living. When you were in Egypt, you didn't know how to fully live. Now you're with me. I'm going to give you the secret to the full life. And the full life is set out by framework with 10 words. The 10 words, the 10 commands, they're not the only thing, but they set out the framework. Top four are about connection with God. So there's only one creator, God. Worship him only. Don't make idols. And the first four talk about how you connect with the one who made you. The second set, the second six, are how you live that out with other people. Catch this. What you do matters. What you do to other people, good or bad, matters. And it affects the way you relate to God. We want to separate it and say, I got my God life, and then I got my me and you life. And God says, no, that's not how he made us. He made us for himself. And the way we express our connection with the creator is by living right with you and me. So you saw that the order is important. The order is important. Honor your father and mother. The first of the second set begins with honoring father and mother. God created family and it means something to him. He wants to give blessing through family. And then there was last week, no murder. Life is precious because God authors life. You and I aren't put in the driver's seat. God authors life. Therefore, he says and has the right to say when life is taken. We, not, we shouldn't be flippant about mom and dad. We shouldn't be flippant about the taking of life. And then today, do not commit adultery. What is that about? At its base level, it's about the beauty of the most fundamental relationship that can cause us to thrive or suffer, and that is the marriage relationship. So these, the order means something. Honoring the people who brought you into this world, mom and dad, and honoring all life. And then as you grow, that's why I want to talk to you, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and college age. How you now express who you are in the way you relate to another man or another woman really matters if you want to follow Jesus. Why no adultery? Let's, let's state the obvious. Because marriage is a gift. Honor father and mother. Family's a gift. Don't murder. Life's a gift. What God is saying to us is the way he made us to relate matters. And when you get that secret deep in your soul that he made you for something greater and you honor the way he made you, your life, it may not be perfect. It may not look like the ideal American dream with more money, bigger house, bigger vacations. You may live a simple life but you will live the blessed life if you get this embedded in your soul. Marriage is a gift. Now, God introduces this early in the story. Genesis 2, I'll put it on the screen. We go to Genesis a lot because those first chapters of the Bible set the tone for the whole word of God. And early on, after he creates everything, and he creates man and woman, he says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then close up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. What is God saying? He makes men and women. I want us to catch this. Like, how, I'm a science major. How does all of this work? Catch the poetic, beautiful language. 
He doesn't create out of a new space, man and woman, like men are absolutely different than women in the sense of their biological makeup. They're the same. But there is a connection. There's a connectivity between men and women at the unseen level. You don't see the rib, but you know it's there. At the deepest unseen level, there's a connection between man and woman. And here's why God gives us that little insight. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. The reason God gives us insight into how he made men and women the same but uniquely different, connected but particular, was this, marriage. Look at verse 24. That is why a man leaves father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. The goal of God describing the origins of mankind was not to confuse biology majors. It was to say the purpose of him making us different is that in the right setting, God is going to reunite man and woman so you're born an individual, but that's not God's intention for most people for the rest of their life. Some have the beauty of singleness. God is calling some of you to be single all of your life. And that while the culture may say, well, man, you're missing out, the culture is wrong. God designed you for himself, and he knows what's best. So some will be single for life. He has unique calling, unique gifting, and we want to celebrate singleness. That's not less than. But others, and many of you, are going to get married and we, want, we don't want to say that's less than or more than. We're going to say that God designed us for this, some of us. He designed us for marriage. And the reason he designed us for marriage is to create one flesh. So the one flesh relationship is given from Genesis to it is so important. Yes, they're still unique. Uh, if you've been married, you know like your spouse... They're, they're their own individual. They have their own mindset, their own ways, their own goods, their own bads, their own ups, their own downs. But there is something between the two of you that we need to think about and we need to celebrate. So Adam and Eve get to enjoy the benefits. And, and, and it says in verse 25, Adam and, uh, and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were open with each other. Breakfast together and lunch together and dinner together, work together. They got rained on uh, together, so to speak. They, 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 they looked at the best vegetables and they cooked together. They experienced the highs and lows of life and that is God's design. And there was no shame. They experienced the closest any human beings can be. They were naked and they enjoyed sex together and it was beautiful. Uh, God says early on, this is what many of you, not all of you, many of you were made for. Now, so what's adultery and what's... The, What's going to go on? We're going to ask the five questions. But what, what is the basis of adultery? Adultery is the intrusion of an outsider into the one flesh relationship. At its simplest level, God creates Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, and says, you're going to be united before me, one flesh. I see you as this, this one connected relationship. And adultery is throwing in a third par party, whether it's an invitation of the guy inviting in another woman or the woman inviting in another guy. You were made for a connection that is sacred for the two of you. Now, this is, this is like basis. Most of us get that, and even our culture would say that's what marriage is about. But adultery happens all the time. Let's not be naive. There are many here in this room that you, you, you united yourself, one flesh. You got married two years ago, five years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever. And you have not been faithful to that commitment. 
You've invited someone else into what was meant to be for two, man and woman for life. Exclusive, you invited someone else in. So adultery happens all the time. So why would God be so clear, no adultery? Students, hear me. Young people, hear me. Because the message our culture is giving is counter to what God is saying. And we're going to have to choose who we're going to listen to and whose philosophy, whose mindset, whose worldview is going to drive my behavior because it is easier always to include someone else in, especially when the chips are down, especially when my spouse disappoints me, especially when I'm in a new city, especially whenever. It's always going to be easier to commit adultery and to be faithful. That's reality. Why is God saying at the outset, if you want to live faithful to me, live faithful to your spouse. All right, we ask five questions on every one of these to kind of get the heart of God. Question number one, what am I supposed to learn? The commandments are our response to a God who's faithful. The commandments are a response. God is faithful. God is the faithful one. Why does he give the command? Because at, at the heart of it, God's faithfulness drives my faithfulness. Hear me. The reason God would want to give us this kind of lifestyle, the reason he calls us to this is because this is who he is. He's not asking you and I to be anything other than what we were created to be. You and I were created in the image of God. And if you want to know what God is like, God is faithful. So all God is doing is saying, I made you and I made you like me. Now, live out my way. Live faithful. So faithfulness is a good thing. We need to celebrate this because in our culture, people are saying your needs being met is the great thing. And what God is saying is faithfulness, living like you were intended, is the good thing. Now, at a base level, why is this so important? If we let this erode, if anyone could do what anyone wants to do, which is what our culture is saying, how is anyone going to trust one another? If you just say, get married and enjoy great benefits of a married life, but when, when you want to, just go and sleep with him or sleep with her or do whatever, because that's what feels good. How is anyone going to trust? How is anyone going to raise their kids to know and honor God when all, all a child sees is mom and dad doing what they want? There's a bigger thing at work, my friends, than just you and your passions and your needs. God's taking the bigger view. He wants a whole community to be raised up to live like him. And when you and I live unfaithful, it sends a picture, it sends a message to those who are watching. And so God's thinking of the next generation. You see, faithfulness is a good thing. So where our culture says, satisfy your thirst, God says, I've given you a way to satisfy your needs. I've given the husband a wife. I've given the wife a husband. Now, you're never going to see the ramifications when it's displayed out there in media. Because it all looks good and feels good, and there's always nice, perfect background music while it's happening. It's just, everything's perfect. You forget that everyone's got makeup, and it took them seven takes to get that scene. But, but it all looks good. But let's be honest. Talk to people who grew up in an environment where mom and dad were unfaithful. And you know what you'll you will see hurt and pain. Hurt and pain that doesn't go away when they leave the house. Hurt and pain that doesn't go away when they get married. Hurt and pain that gets projected into all sorts of relationships. In the real world, a lack of faithfulness destroys. 
It erodes on every level. Now, this is not a guilt trip. This is a reminder of why God gave this beautiful command, no adultery. Because he knows that in our wiring, when trust is broken at the deepest level, you can't just sugarcoat it. It's not like paint. If you don't like the color of paint in your house, what do you do? Just get another can of paint and roll over it, and you never knew it was that ugly color. Unfortunately, unfaithfulness is not that easy. You know, just get another can of good memories and a little vacation and a little whatever and cover over that blemish. It hurts. So, so why does God give the command? Because he is faithful. Now, what did it mean to ancient Israel? I'm going to be hyper clear because some may be confused with what I'm trying to say. No one's allowed to have sex with any person except his or her spouse. That's what it meant. So there's no like, well, back then, you don't understand. What God is saying is ultra clear. If you're going to enjoy the beauty of sex, it is, it is meant to happen in marriage, one man, one woman, for life. Flourishing. That's the biblical model. It always has been. It always will be. Why, though? Because God is faithful. The reason for the rule, the rule is a beautiful thing. So why did God give it? Third question. Faithfulness is the foundation for community. You see, rules aren't a bad thing. Rules aren't negative. They actually expand our capacity to thrive. Let me give you an example. When you switch the rules midstream, it leads to all sorts of things that you never designed. You have a job, right? And you agreed. Hopefully you agreed on what you get paid before you started. Rule of thumb. Find out what they pay, right? So you start your job and you agreed on X amount of salary. You're like, wow, that's pretty good. And here are the benefits. And so you're working. And then mid-month, your manager comes to you and says, like, we're going to change it up a little bit. Now you get to come to work, but we're not going to pay you. We're not going to pay you anymore. But you can volunteer. Same job. All the benefits of enjoying work in our company. We're just not going to pay you anymore. Now you'd be outraged. Why would you be outraged? Because you went into this relationship with an agreement. I will do my part and you will do your part. But when someone midstreams changes the rules to their benefit, it happens. Now if that's a working relationship, which is just like a basic illustration, how much more in a deep abiding, I'm giving you my life. Like I'm giving you the rest of my days, I'm committing the rest of my days, as long as God gives me, with you. How much more? A job, yeah, you, you leave the job, you start another job. But how much more complicated is when a husband or a wife says, yeah, I'm, I'm out. I want something else. Now, what does this reveal about God's heart? And this is why I want us to see the connection between the first four commands and the second six commands. The marriage relationship is a picture of of our relationship with God. Marriage is about more than marriage. Your relationship with your spouse or your future relationship with that spouse is just about, it's about more than you having a place to live with a person to live with. It's actually a model of what, on a smaller scale, of what life with God is all about. Now there is a prophetic book in the Bible because this command early in Exodus gets lived out in the rest of the Bible. What happens when people commit adultery? What happens when a whole group of people, a whole nation of people commit adultery? What happens when we don't live faithful to God or live faithful to our spouse? There's a book in the Bible, a small book called Hosea, not Jose, Hosea. And Hosea is an interesting and beautiful story of what we do when people are 
unfaithful. We don't have the time to read all of Hosea this morning, but there is a, a, a review. There is a review of every book of the Bible on something called the Bible Project. And Tim Mackey, who is my Hebrew professor, is the voice. I want you to see this video. It's about two and a half minutes long that gives us an overview of the book of Hosea. The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land and they took all the abundance that he gave them and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel and he thinks about doing so, but instead he says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry... You can, uh, you can read, download all of these online for free. Just go to thebibleproject.com and, and you can enjoy it. But I wanted you to catch the overview of the book of Hosea. God's faithfulness is bigger than Israel's sin. And God has a choice in the story, just like Hosea has a choice in the story. He can choose to divorce his wife and get rid of her because of her unfaithfulness. But notice what happens in the book. That's not what happens. God, because of his own love and compassion, his faithfulness, pursues the person that has been unfaithful. Hosea 2, 19 to 20. I just want you to hear it. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth or marry you in righteousness and, just, and justice, in love and compassion. I will marry you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. How does God respond to adultery? This is going to be the twist. 
How does God respond to adultery? We see it in the book of Hosea. God does not respond with divorce. He doesn't start over. God responds to an unfaithful people with love and compassion and mercy, and he pursues her. Why? In the bigger picture, see, marriage is is a microcosm. It's a small bit of our relationship to God. God is faithful, so he's calling us to live faithful. But what do we do with unfaithful people? Now, he does say to Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, they're going to be destroyed temporarily. They're going to be sent to a foreign land. Life does not go well for Israel during the time of Hosea because sin has consequences. So you don't just sweep it under the rug. When someone's been unfaithful, it has long-term negative consequences that are there. Just look at King David. Those of you who read the Bible, King David is a man after God's own heart, and his life is great. It goes up, 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 up. You read when he sins by adultery with Bathsheba. God's grace is there. God forgives him. God keeps him as king. But the rest of his days are filled with that shrapnel. It affects his kids. His own children rebel and try to kick him out as king. It does not go well for him. But yet, God doesn't give up on David. Hear this. And David is the line where which we get Jesus. You see, God in the scriptures is always faithful. God is faithful when his people are not. We need to Remind ourselves, students, hear this. You've already experienced a lot of people not being faithful to you. Maybe mom or dad, or an aunt or an uncle, your next door neighbors, or someone else in the church, whatever the case, you've already seen unfaithfulness. You've seen it, you see it on TV, you see it in media, but you've seen it in the real world, and some of you are walking around right now just hurt because other people have not been faithful. And I am sorry, sin is real and harsh. And it leads to things it never, it, sh- it should never lead to, and it does happen. But how am I going to respond? That's the question. And what we see in Hosea and what we see in the whole arc of the biblical narrative, wherever you see this come up, is people in relationship with God respond with faithfulness. It's not eye for an eye. You did this to me, therefore I'm going to do it to you. That's never sanctioned by God. He calls rather his people to follow his ways. God is faithful with Israel even when she is faithless. And he says to Hosea, model, model my heart. Take her back. Pay her debts. Receive her in. Because in the bigger scheme of things, I know that every person I've created is broken and I want to bring them back. You see, your response can model the heart of God. Now, we weren't expecting that one. We were expecting, hey, when when someone else commits adultery, I pray for them and I walk away. And that's just not the heart of God. It's just not. Now, what does this mean in terms of our New Testament situation? This is the question we ask to say, does Jesus bring any light to this? And that's why I said, go to Matthew 5. So if you have Matthew 5 open, go to Matthew 5, and it's Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And basically what Jesus does is he takes the law as it was written and he gives, he gives the heart. He gives the true teaching. He gives the intention from the beginning. Jesus doesn't give a new law, but rather he shares what the law was always about and what will happen in his people in light of his coming. Matthew 5, we'll read from verse 27. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. So, and this is why I wanted to talk to students more, more than anyone else. Because saying, Jose, like, why are you talking to me? Like, I'm not there yet. What Jesus says is the heart of no adultery is about more than when you get married. It's actually about how you live faithful to God by living his way in a culture that says anything goes. And so Jesus says you don't have to be married in one sense to go on the path of adultery. Now, a, little, a more literal reading would be this. Whoever keeps on looking in order to lust for her. God has made people that are beautiful. Now, we define beauty in all sorts of ways, but in your eye, for each of us, you, you have this way that is more beautiful than others, right? And so you see someone and say, eh. You see someone else and go, wow. And that's like a personal perspective. And Jesus, because he makes us all beautiful, that beauty is recognized by other people. And so Jesus isn't saying like, man, you're in deep sin for noticing that he made a beautiful woman. If you're a guy, like, that's, that's okay. But the one who continues to look in order to lust after her, it's the second look. It's the 12th look. It's the, it's the hidden photo, which is totally sketchy, to look at afterwards. It's, <laughs> it's the looking at people that you've never met, but somehow they've posted their activity online. You don't even know these people, but you find that website and, or you find that whatever and you look at that human so to lust, so to gratify your desires. Yes, Jesus made beauty, but Jesus is telling us the way to avoid the path to adultery is to remember it begins with the heart. Adultery begins in the heart. Now we need to be careful. I am not saying Lust is the same thing as adultery. Just like last week we talked about anger. Jesus said anyone who's angered at their brother is worthy of judgment. And he's talking about not murdering. Murder is clearly worse than being angry. Can we just agree on that? Absolutely. And yeah, adultery has deeper ramifications than lust. But Jesus is telling us what happens in the heart will show up in the way we live. So it starts with one look or one click and, and one video, and then years go by, and we need more, and we need more, and we need more. And the downward spiral, hear me, young person, the downward spiral does not begin when you find someone you want to marry. The downward spiral begins when you leave your heart unchecked. When you don't recognize that lust will take you places you never intended to go and do things you never wanted to do, but it will take you on that road. So what's Jesus' solution to this? It's interesting. Verse 29, he says, no big deal. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And throw it away. Which is pretty gross. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. I, I just want you to catch this. Better to lose a bit than to lose all of you. And then he, if you didn't get that one, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Gross. I, I just don't even get that. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole. Now, Jesus is obviously using hi, hyperbole. He's using, he's using a writing technique to be dramatic. He's not saying literally gouge out your eye. Here's why. You have an other eye. <laughs> and let's say you gouge out the second eye. Do you know you don't need your physical eyes to lust? It starts in the mind. If you have seen someone or something, you don't even need to see them with your physical eye to lust. 
And he's not saying physically cut off your right hand because you still have your left hand, right? But if you, if you were somehow with no right hand able to cut off your left hand, which is tricky, if you could, if you could somehow do that, I don't need my hands to lust. I don't need them to lust. Jesus is saying that the beginning of adultery is in the heart. The beginning of sin is in the heart. So he's saying to us, if it's a, a magazine or a book or a website, don't read it. If it's, if it's a store that has that, avoid it. If it's a computer that gives you access to it, cut yourself off from it. Whatever causes you to stumble, Jesus is saying desire isn't the problem. We all, he made Adam with a desire for his wife. Desire is beautiful. Longing is beautiful, especially this is why it's hard to be young and not yet married because God implanted in you this passion that should be expressed in marriage. But what he's saying is I want your life to be protected. So whatever you need to do to stop the next step, take the hard course. Lust is a distortion of the beauty that God intends for you. Lust is a cousin to deeper Longings, And when we live out our lust, it's a symptom that we're losing intimacy with God. When I, when I act out of my lust, it is saying this thing is more important than, than what God created me to be and who he created me to be. Now, this is just so hard, isn't it? Truth be told, I was longing to call in sick <coughs> this morning. I've known this one's coming since the beginning. It's like, Geez, how do you have a loving, graceful conversation about adultery? How do, how do you do that? Well, what we need to do is we need to be honest that it is happening. And God in his grace, Jesus in his love, is telling you, especially young person, set the course of your life Godward, and that means Jesus says, whatever hard thing you have to do, as hard as plucking your own eye out. He's saying, don't play with this because he knows where lust, unchecked, will take us. Now, how do we live this out? I've got five things that I hope you can embed somewhere in your soul that as it comes up today, tomorrow, this week, you will let some foundation in God remind you that you don't have to cave in to your feelings and your passions just because you have them. Number one, recognize our culture is telling us another story. We, part, of, part of the no adultery is recognizing that there's an alternative. See, our culture is saying anything's okay, obey your thirst, and Jesus is reminding us that that kind of thinking is short-sighted, and it's actually toxic because what happens with unfaithfulness goes so deep into our personhood, it goes so deep into our soul, for some, it takes a lifetime to get over. And so Jesus is saying to you and to me, the culture is saying it's okay, but God knows how we were made, and it's never okay. Second thing, run from temptation. This is not something that you're called to fight. You're called to run from it. Jesus' words, cut it off. Paul tells the church in Corinth, flee. He says to Timothy, flee from youthful desires, run away, do not think. Well, God is in my life, I've got the Holy Spirit, I got this, you don't have this. This will have you. Lust is something that we run from. We, we run from those things, we don't say, God, make me strong in the middle of this evil environment. Now he does wanna give us strength. 
First to our legs to run as far away as we can from it. We run, we, we, we run from this. We don't try to tackle it. God has told us it's okay to get away. And he wants to give us the grace to do it. Three, lean on your community for prayer and practical help. You see, unfortunately, because we don't talk about this in church, it becomes a bit of the taboo. So we're dealing with it. If you're dealing with it right now, you feel like, I don't have anyone to talk to. I'm sorry that we are, are not yet creating that kind of culture and environment where we could be honest about who we really are. But that is our heart. That's our longing. We want to be a place where it's, it's safe to talk about real things and we can call on each other. You see, you're not the first to deal with it. You won't be the last. You're not the first to stumble. You won't be the last. And so this is why God put us in community so if you're younger, if you could find someone that's a little bit older in their walk with Jesus, it doesn't, I'm not talking about age, but in their stage of walking with Jesus, who's found victory, open up and talk to them. And, and, and you'll probably find that you're not going to be judged, but you're going to find grace and help. We need each other on this. 1 Corinthians 10 says, no temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. In other words, you're nothing special. No offense. Everyone is dealing with temptation of some sort. Yours may be slightly different, but everyone is subject to temptation. But look, God is what? What does it say? Faithful. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. God knows what's going to come your way, and he's already providing now a path to faithfulness. Fourth thing. Remember that the Holy Spirit is with you. Jesus told his disciples, remember the Holy Spirit's with you. Jesus told his disciples, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. All that belongs to the Father is mine. You need to catch this. Jesus says, all that the Father, which is like the universe, right? All that the Father has made is mine. And now Jesus says to promises his disciples, when I go away, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. All that the Father is mine. The Son has the ability to give you all that you need. And so he says, when the Spirit comes, you will have all that is mine. Don't you forget, in the face of temptation and struggle, you have the Holy Spirit with you, living inside of you if you're one of his followers. And you can have the power to say no, and you can have the power to run away, and you can have the power to confess and repent when you cave in. The Spirit is with you. Here's the, here's the troubling reality. The Spirit is with us as we sin. Yikes. The Spirit is there. The Spirit hasn't left us. The Spirit, the Spirit is grieved. It's like a parent. When you watch your child doing something you know is going to be destructive. And, and you're there and you know where this is headed and they go that way anyway. You're, you don't stop becoming their parent, Right? You don't cease to love. You don't cease to care. But your heart is grieved because you know what, where that's going to lead. You know the scar that's going to leave. And so God in his grace has given us his spirit so that we can resist and we can follow the way of Jesus. See, the Father is faithful. The Son is faithful. The Spirit is faithful. And so, so what God is calling us is to be like him. But you say, Jose, I'm not God. You're right, you're not. But God's calling over your life is to live in his way, and his way is faithful. 
And so part of discipleship to Jesus is in all areas, but especially this one. Jesus isolates, God isolates this out and says, no adultery. That means the culture is going to say it's okay. Those of you who have been around life a little bit longer know that what was unacceptable 30 years ago is now mainstream. And if you look at the course of where our world is headed, it is basically becoming more me-centric and God-avoiding. Whatever I want is okay. And hear me, the culture is never going to preach the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is always going to be countercultural. And whereas everyone around you is going to say, that is so old school, that is so antiquated, that is so like last century. You know, that, that is, why would you even think about being faithful when it's hard? It's because God is faithful when it's hard. And if God says to Hosea, bring your wife back, he's giving us the path to response. Now, I save the hardest one for last because that's my mojo. That's, that's how I operate. The hardest one for last. Number five, learn to respond with faithfulness. What do you do when the people closest to you fail? This is the hard one. It's one thing to say to you, okay, be faithful, right. Well, let's assume you are and the person that you marry is not. This is the countercultural message of the gospel. And you see it not just in the teachings of Jesus, but you see it all through. God responds to our unfaithfulness with faithfulness. There are consequences. Sin destroys, of course. But God's heart is to bring us back. God's heart is to bring us back. God's heart is to bring us back. And that does not change when it comes to adultery. I want to suggest to you that we become too flippant with it's time for me to move on. We become too flippant with that, even in the church. Now, some of you are saying, no, wait a minute here. My husband was unfaithful to me. My wife was unfaithful to me. I have a right to walk away. I would just, I, I would just plead with you, really search the scriptures. Really search the scriptures on this. God's heart is to, for us to respond to evil with good all throughout. God's calling to us to respond to unfaithfulness is with faithfulness. What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that just because there's unfaithfulness in marriage does not mean it's an automatic ticket to divorce. It's not. As a matter of fact, I would plead with you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that shouldn't even cross your mind. But rather, I should be looking to respond like God. Now, am I saying this is easy? No. But I'm saying this is the way of, the way of Jesus is that we would come and respond to evil with faithfulness and with good and with love and with forgiveness as the Spirit enables me to be like what I, I feel like I can't be in my own strength, is to forgive and to restore and to make whole. Now, does divorce happen because of adultery all of the time? All I'm saying is as the people of God, we must consider the ways of God. And if that is going to happen, that's got to be such the remote last, last, last that you don't even think about it. I, I don't even want to go there. It does happen. Now, if you have a spouse that says goodbye and you're trying to plead with them, plead, plead for grace, plead for forgiveness, and I'll have nothing 
man, there's grace for you, absolutely. I'm not saying now, now you're the guilty one and you're the evil one. But let's just say there's unfaithfulness by someone and they respond with repentance. And they say, man, I just should have. I can't believe I didn't. And I have nothing but sorrow for this. And this was not my heart. And I did this. And I am sorry. And I ask God for his grace. What I am saying is in that scenario, follower of Jesus, our hard response is to respond like God with faithfulness. Now I say, well, that, that's just, that just doesn't happen. My grandparents, uh, they're both with Jesus now. We, I grew up with my grandparents living not far away, and they didn't speak a lot of English, so we met in the middle because I didn't speak a lot of Spanish. So we didn't have long conversations, but their love for one another, oh my gosh, so beautiful. They're just cute. You know, you get that cute older couple. They're just like, oh man, you know, big earlobes and everything. It was just, <laughs> anyway. Your earlobes never stop growing, evidently. So that was grandma and grandpa. Love them. It wasn't until I was older that I realized the gnarly twists and turns of their story. Uh, they grew up in Puerto Rico, and my father, my grandfather, he traveled a bunch, uh, driving, and he was living a secret life. They weren't followers of Jesus. They were married. My grandfather, wife, and five girls. Wow. How do you have time for anything? Well, in his own sinfulness... He had a long-term relationship with another lady on the other side of the island that produced four kids over time. This wasn't a slip-up. This was rebellion and sin. Now, they were not followers of Jesus. Shouldn't have done it anyway, but they weren't followers of Jesus. And so how did Grandma respond? She actually responded like Jesus. When he finally fessed up and all of that came to light and he walked away from that sinful relationship she did not reject him. Somebody said, like, she's crazy. I actually think she was like Jesus. She, she received him and extended grace and lived in a faithful way. Even where he was not faithful, she remained faithful. And she taught her daughters to love dad. Even in a sin, our response in God is to love. So I've seen this. This is my family story. Now, of course, sin makes a mess of everything. It led to all sorts of things. This other woman that he had had, had, uh, had four children with, she became unstable. Here's what grandma did. Grandma raised three of them as her own kids and told my mom and the sisters, we're going to love them. They had nothing to do with this. They didn't do this. And we get the privilege to love them just like family. So I grew up with my aunts, and then I had these other aunts, and I didn't exactly get it. I had these other cousins, and I didn't, I honestly, like, didn't exactly get it, but they were included in the family. Okay, let's take it one step further. One of those daughters from this adultery, adulterous relationship, one of the daughters ended up with severe mental issues after having a baby. And so my grandmother and grandfather adopted their granddaughter and raised her from 11 months old. Wow. With love. Even though grandma had no biological connection, she still extended grace and mercy. What am I saying? In Jesus, we can find the power to forgive, and in Jesus, we can respond to evil with love. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow, and I realize I don't understand your exact situation. 
So please don't walk out here upset that I would suggest that you don't have a right to feel hurt. You have a right to feel hurt, but I'm gonna say that in Jesus, you don't have a right to inflict pain. You don't. Because those who have received much, love much. And you need to remember that even though it is easier and culturally acceptable to lash out, that we are a people who have received grace. God's given you, friend, God's given you, you may not have committed adultery, but you've sinned too, and God has extended grace towards you. So we are a people who allow the Holy Spirit to manifest the wisdom of God and give us the real power to forgive. Wow. I think part of my enjoying life in Jesus now is as I look back, Grandma lived like Jesus. Now eventually she did respond to the grace of Jesus, and so did Grandpa, and they lived to their last final days in love. It's possible. You say, Jose, that is so like remote. I'm telling you, I saw it. It doesn't mean grandma wasn't hurt. It doesn't mean grandma didn't have deep wounds from that. But it does mean that she lived like Jesus. And I pray that you do too. All right, let's make it personal. Are you allowing Jesus to shape the way you see your life right now? Are you going to go the way of Jesus? Are you going to go the way of our culture when it comes to sin and sexuality, when it comes to forgiveness? Let's be a people who give mercy and grace because we received it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we we're reminded of our own failings even now. But yet we think about how much you've given towards us. We think about your love. We think about your forgiveness. We think about your mercy. We think about your goodness. We think about your faithfulness. God, this is who you are. And we need you. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But yet we do believe that in Jesus, we can experience full pardon. So thank you for that, God. Thank you for extending grace towards us. Now, Holy Spirit, do a work inside so that we can actually live like you. Make us a people who live faithful because you are faithful. 